So if you don't mind, take your Bible, your copy of the Word of God, and go to the New Testament book of Titus. The New Testament book of Titus. We, of course, have been going through Titus this month. I hope that it has been a blessing to you. A blessing to you and your family and your walk. I hope it increases your walk with the Lord. It has definitely been an encouragement to me. Titus, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, but we're going to begin a couple verses there in Titus chapter 1. Uh, this, of course, is one of Timothy's, or one of Paul's rather, pastoral epistles, the other two being First and Second Timothy. Uh, Timothy being his son in the faith, and we can see right there in verse number 1, uh, or uh, Titus chapter 1, on verse 4, that Titus was also considered his son in the faith. And really that just means somebody he was led of the Lord to help and bring into the ministry. And again, we've already talked much about Titus. He was a Gentile. Uh, he was a Gentile pastor, a church planter. He was likely from the island of Crete, as we can see also from uh, Titus chapter 1, is where Paul left him. Paul appointed him. Uh, and we've talked again about him and God, how God called him to plant churches uh, amongst these, this, the Cretans, if you will, on that island. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 1 says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, the things that are lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee, if I have appointed. And if you were to look at those words there, he wants to ordain elders. And if we jump down to verse number 7, just kind of a way of a long introduction here, he also mentions the word bishop. So comparing those words together and see how they're interchanging right here between verses 5 and 7, uh, most conclude, rightfully so, that these are the same position. Elder and bishop are the same position. 2 Timothy chapter 3 even talks about uh, uh, the, what a, the requirements for a bishop, and they patterned after or much similar to what's here in the book of Titus. So God used Paul to lead Titus into the ministry and then appoint him uh, or use him to ordain him to put him in the island of Crete to plant churches. And this truly, minus the island specifically of Crete, but it is the primary calling for missionaries today. Uh, to plant independent New Testament churches and to ordain elders in the, those churches to which God has called them to be. And as we mentioned last week, God led Paul to write, of course, First and Second Timothy, but Titus as well. And as he wrote to Timothy, he touched on things that Timothy needed. And when he wrote to Titus, he touched on things that Titus needed. Now, all of those things are applicable to us, and we can find our identity either closely related to Timothy or more to Titus. Timothy was more... Timid's probably a too strong of a word, but maybe more reserved than Titus. Titus was a hard charger. He was 100% Gentile. He was from the island of Crete. And as we'll, as we'll see again today, and we looked at it over, over the last few weeks, the Cretans were, they were a wild bunch. Uh, this was a interesting, an interesting island. So the motivation for this letter was, of course, specific to Titus and his callings to the Cretans, but with God as the author. It's also applicable to us. And again, I want to point out that because Titus was a Gentile and because he lived in the very pagan culture of Crete, we as Christians today, in the so-called, I don't like this term, but it's probably more true than not, in the so-called post-Christian society that we live in, we probably have a lot of things in common with, with Titus and some of the things that he faced. So what God inspired Paul to write to Titus 
is, again, applicable to us because it's the Word of God, but also because we can relate to Titus as a Christian living in a non-Christian culture. Now, we, of course, are not talking about the religious facade that we have. You know, I've heard, and you've probably heard many times, you go to the South and there's the Bible Belt, and it's, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, the, a prominent Christian force, if you will. But personally, I think that belt is unbuckled and it's just a facade and there's a lot of things up front. Now, I'm not saying there's not a good, a lot of good fundamental churches there that stick to the Bible and real, real, real believers. Now, they're everywhere. They're not just reserved to the South, of course, or any country for that matter. But I'm not referring to that facade if there be such a one. Titus also dealt with one of those. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. The Bible states that there were many on that island that professed that they know God, but in works they deny Him. They profess that they know God, but in works that deny Him. May that never be true of us. But with that said, and knowing that, there is a direct application to us. And so far this month, we've, we've been reminded of some things that are directly applicable to us from this letter. First, we saw that the grace of God is available to every man. Look at that in verse number or chapter 2. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And we talked about how that grace is displayed on the cross of Calvary. And those who accept that payment have, can receive that grace. We've also learned that those who've accepted that grace, as you can see in verse 14, we are a peculiar people. And we talked about that last week. Well, how do we define peculiar? Uh, to be beyond ordinary or, or something along those lines. We are to be a little different. Not just to be different, but because we serve a, a risen Savior. And today, as we look through chapter 3 here, I believe that God wants us to remember some things. In fact, look at verse number 14 of chapter 2 again. It says... Who gave himself, speaking of Jesus, for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And then with that in mind, jump down to chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is that passages, those verses there at the end of chapter 2, speaking about Jesus giving himself, speaking about us being a peculiar people, uh, speaking of us being zealous for good works. In verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul says, I want, to, I want you, Titus, to affirm constantly these things. So we're going to look at these things and why we're supposed to affirm them. Constantly. Now, with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for your Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word this morning. We thank you for your consistent word that we can trust it, that we can hold on to these words, Lord, in a way that we can hold on to nothing else in this life. Lord, we're thankful that we, uh, that we can trust you. And Lord, we ask you again that you meet with us and that we listen to your word. And that your word does not return void. It does what you set it out to do in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to be open to you. Lord, help me to be open to you. Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name this morning, I pray. Amen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm also going to read through this chapter to get the word of God in us this morning. The Bible says to put them in mind, to remind them. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, 
to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, that these things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, Articacus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenith the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanted unto them. Let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not fruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. I want, to, I want to begin again this morning by highlighting two sets of two words in verse number 8 of chapter 3. Those two sets are affirmed constantly and these things. So I've already mentioned that before the prayer, but the phrase these things is, of course, a reference to something. I believe it's a reference to the things he's already been talking about. And, he, and then he tells Titus to affirm constantly. To speak continually with confidence. When I was in the military, amongst the formation, I heard uh, somebody tell me, somebody that had been in the military a, a number of years before me, or longer than me rather, and he says, one of the ways to keep your guys or keep your soldiers on the right path is to continually to remind them. We, in, we have this thing called safety briefs, right? Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, and they, but they work the best when your soldiers know who's given those safety briefs. You know, when, they, when they remind them often about the things and they know that their leaders care for them. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get across here to re tell Antiochus to remind them of some things. To affirm constantly over and over and over again. Tell them the truths. Titus, therefore, was to boldly proclaim Bible truths constantly. Over and over. Throughout his life and ministry starting on the island of Crete. If you remember the Old Testament, uh, God told the children of Israel to write it on the doorpost, write them on the walls, write, write these verses everywhere so you can always be reminded of how great our God is. And Paul was telling Timothy to pretty much do the same thing. Keep them in the know. But before we get to the truths of which he was so boldly to remind us of, or those folks there on the island of Crete, I think there are some serious implications here in verse 8. Uh, that have to come before those, those reminders. So think with me. Look at verse 8 again. Put your thinking caps on, Kaylee. Maybe your, your headphones or whatever. Put your thinking caps on. And I want to ask you a question. According to verse 8, what reason did Paul give Titus to justify his desire for Titus to constantly affirm those things? 
Right? I think the answer is right there. Look at verse 8 again. This is a faithful saying. These things that I will, I will, it's kind of I want you to do. It's my will. I will that thou affirm constantly. I want you to tell them over and over some things. Why? That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So at least, again, two applications are here. And one, we must believe in God. That's a clear implication. And two, we who believe in God must maintain good works. We, ha- we should have a desire to maintain good works. Now, over the course of this sermon this morning, uh, we're going to look closer at these. Uh, but our first order of business is to make sure we know God, is to make sure we believe in God. And simply put, we are sinners, right? We are sinners in need of a Savior. Without a Savior, without Jesus Christ, this is the best life we're going to live. I hope you're content if you don't know Christ with this life, because this is, this is the best we're going to get. I heard a saying many, many years ago that for the believer, this is the worst we'll ever be. Right? And for the non-believer, this is the best we will ever be. And, and it's very, very true. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And while we were sinners, while we are yet sinners, God can, commended His love toward us, and He sent His only begotten Son to die on a, on a cross on Calvary to pay our sin debt. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to shed His grace upon this planet for us, but He did so because He loved us. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord in faith and receive Him, believe and receive that gift of atonement, we will be saved. I love Romans 10.9. I think if y'all listen to me at all, you'll probably realize that it's one of my favorite salvation passages. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's simple. I like simple black and white passages. If I do this, I have a home in heaven. Now, God has given me the faith. God has given, enabled you with that same faith. All we have to do is exercise that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He died on that old rugged cross for you and for me, for our sins. And accept that payment, and we're saved. It is that simple. There's a lot of things confusing in this world. Salvation is not one of those. Salvation is very, very simple. And this, I think, is what Paul is referring to here in verse number 8 when he wrote, They which have believed in God. These are believers. You know, by far and large, and unfortunately, there is a false assumption that those who gather in a church building on Sunday morning are God's people. Now, God's people do gather, but the gathering doesn't make us God's people. We are saved by faith, by grace through faith. We are not saved by gathering. Gathering is something we have done. But verse 5 says, not by works of righteousness as we have done, but, by, but according to His mercy, He saved us. I feel like we're struggling to get off the ground this morning. Who's, who's with me this morning? Who's, who is a believer in God this morning? Who has accepted that payment? Can I get some amens out there? Amen. amen. Well, praise the Lord. That's, that excites me. So let's continue in, in the study of Paul's faithful saying to constantly affirm some things. And again, make sure that you are a genuine believer. If there's any doubt whatsoever, don't leave here without knowing for sure. It is that important. I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's important enough to go row by row. Brother Harry, are you saved? Brother Shannon, are you saved? I mean, on and on and on. And we get some amens. And, but if you're not, don't leave here. Come see me. Come see one of the men, the ladies. Don't leave here without knowing for sure. And to continue, for those which have believed in God... 
Let's look at this chapter to see exactly what God through Paul is telling Titus to constantly inform. Look at verse number one again. He says, put them in mind. And by the way, I, I named this the sermon this morning a faithful saying right there out of verse number eight. And what are these saying? What are these things he's telling us to affirm or remind? He says, put them in mind, number one, to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Number one, this morning, I want, I think Paul is telling Titus to tell them and God to tell us, remember the law. Now, this is not... Now, we're not under the law. We're not talking about that. We are, we, are, we are freed from the law because of grace. We cannot be under the law of God, so to speak. And that's not what he's talking about here. And that's not what I'm trying to talk about here. I'm talking about the laws of the land. What Paul says here, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. Now, I realize that this first point is frustrating. It's frustrating to me. I mean, look at some of the laws that we have today here and around the world. So I realize the regulations that we are, that we deal with. But our obedience to the law is commanded by God. Our obedience to the law is commanded by God. Speed limits are ridiculous, right? Some of them are speed traps, but they're the law. <laughs> We're supposed to obey the law. Speeding is therefore not just a civil disobedience, a civil breaking of the law. There's a lot of things going on over here. <laughs> but it's a, it's a sin against God because this passage says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities. Now this may seem strange, ex extreme or strange to many folks today, but as Christians, we are to be the best residents. We are to be model citizens. We're not to let any man despise us. Look at the last of verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Let no man despise thee. That's one of the ways he's getting across here is for us to be model citizens. We don't want to give a non-believer or a weaker believer, if you will, any reason not to come to Christ or not to draw closer to Christ. And one of the ways we do that is by remembering the law and doing what's expected of us. Now, I'm not talking about we're trying to keep or we're looking at our speed limit going 55 or, or 100K or something like that, and you're always focused, overly focused on keeping the law. That's not what I'm talking about here. There is grace if you drift by accident. I'll just leave that alone for a moment. But So don't be so focused on keeping the law just for the sake of keeping the law, but we are to be obedient. And we'll talk about some of those reasons on why we should be obedient here in a moment. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul wrote that prayers and the giving of thanks are to be made for all men. And he even points out those who are in authority. In that same passage, he wrote that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. What we forget when Paul wrote First and Second Timothy and when he wrote this letter to Titus, when Paul is telling Titus to be obedient to the secular powers, who is the secular power he's talking about? Rome. Who is... Who is in charge of Rome? Nero, to whom Paul would end his life under Nero's reign. And Paul says, pray for him. Give thanks for him. Be obedient. So he knew exactly what he was saying when he told Titus to submit to the authorities. He knew the dangers of a believer in the hands of Rome. He gave his life for it. In fact, he wrote the same thing to those believers living in Rome. And even said that our resistance to the law 
is resistance to God. Notice, I have it on the screen here, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, that they and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, if you read through the rest of Romans chapter 13, he is referring to secular laws, how that God has put in place government. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 when God formed the first government. There's three institutions that are ordained by God. There's the institution of family. There's the institution of marriage or, or, or government. And there's the institution of the church. These three things. These three things are on this earth, marriage being the only one that's before sin. Interesting concept. I look forward to next month and studying the biblical marriages or what the Bible says about marriage. So Paul wrote the same thing that he wrote to Titus to those who living in the city of Rome. Obey the principalities, obey the magistrates. Now, I want to point out also that governments are not always godly. They're just not. If you ever have a chance to study um, Bonhoeffer and read some of his stuff and some of the theological implications and the, and the results of his studies of living in Nazi Germany as a believer in God, he's fascinated in some of the, uh, the conclusions he comes to. He would agree with this. So godly or not, governments have a great responsibility to rule in accordance with the Word of God. I, I hope that comes across as clear. So... I believe in the separation of church and state. I believe the Bible teaches the separation of church and state. But that state, that government, is still bound by God to operate in accordance with the Word of God. Godly or not. But our rendering to them is, is a different issue. Again, the powers that be are ordained of God. How else could Jesus say, render therefore to Caesar the things which be Caesar's. He wasn't condoning the Roman action. He wasn't condoning any of the things that they did, but he was condoning the ordination of local government. Now, I want to also say that I am not saying that there is never a time not to fight. I don't believe Christians are required to be pacifists. I wouldn't have served so many years in the army if I believed I should be a pacifist, nor should I, believe, should I be a pacifist today. But our agenda must be a godly agenda. There are certainly circumstances around the world today and even in our near future where we may likely have to make some decisions. Where we must, like the apostles, choose to obey God rather than man. We need that wisdom. But... In those cases, we must make sure our cause is distinctly Christian. It has to be from God. Get this now, to unnecessarily break a secular law, to keep a Christian mandate, is disobeying the law to obey God. And in essence, disobeying God so we can obey God. Does that make any sense? So if we were to purposely, you know, say the speed limit is 100K and we live... 20 minutes from here, and we're kind of running late, so we'll drive 150K so we can go worship the Lord who tells us to obey those speed limits. This, this confusion. Now, I'm not saying that we, again, we're not focused on those laws. We live by grace, but God is our God, and we should be obedient to Him, and He says to be subject to principalities and powers. The key word in this sentence is unnecessary. Do not break unnecessary laws. If we can serve God while keeping the law, then that's what we do. 
If we can serve God by wearing a mask, then we wear a mask. Right? It's just all the rest. If I can serve God by being a foot or a meter and a half from somebody, and I can do that, then we serve God. Do we have to agree with all those things? Absolutely not. Do we have to agree <laughs> with the speed limits on the Autobahn when it's supposed to be no speed limits? I mean, whatever. You know, so we can go on and on and on. We don't have to agree with those things. They can even frustrate us a little bit. But if we can serve God while still keeping those things, then we still do it. I know we're, we're, late, we're long in the tooth, as you will, going through this, what are we looking at, a year, year and a half, maybe even two years of going through these restrictions and corona, tight lockdown, loose lockdown, over and over. It's mind-boggling. I understand it. Who, who understands it? Is there anybody? I don't think any politician even understands it. Let's do this. Well, let's do this too. And I don't know. I don't get it. But if there are mandates and they're coming down from the principalities and powers that be, and if we can serve God by maintaining those ridiculous regulations, we serve God and we keep those regulations. We just do it, as frustrating as it may be. But if and when serving God truly requires the breaking of the law, we can and we should Respond to the authorities just like the apostles did in the book of Acts by saying, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, you be the judge. But we're going we're gonna to obey the Lord. What's that Joshua said in 2415? As for me and my house, we're going to obey the Lord. So we'll, we'll see how long it takes before we can sing again in church. I believe that Christians are commanded to worship God even in the sanctuary. We'll see how long it lasts. I don't know. I think that's a good telltale sign of the government. Are we under persecution? Is there is there governments that be trying to persecute Holmfeld Baptist Church or even Christians for that matter? Who knows? It's not clear yet. And until it's clear, we will keep we will stay the course. We will stay the course as difficult as it may be at times. We're going to stay the course. We're going to be obedient and even as ridiculous as it be. We may miss our old freedoms. I certainly do. We had conversations in the beginning. I mean, way in the beginning of Corona. I wonder if we'll ever go back to the normal we had before Corona. I don't know. We must continue the course. We can't see how all of this really makes any difference at all sometimes. But no matter what, we are God's people. We are God's people. And because we are to be careful to maintain good works... We are to be subject to principalities and powers. But fortunately, there is so much more to serving God than just being frustrated with those secular laws. Praise the Lord. We're also, we are to remember the law, yes, but look at verse number one again. He says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates and also to put them in mind to be ready to every good work. Not only are we to remember the law, but we are to remember the labor. Why are we here? What's our purpose? In this verse, he wants us to be ready unto every good work. So we're not here just to drive 55 miles an hour. I don't think they do that here anyway. But we're not here just to, to wear a mask and keep those things in. I can go buy some shoes at Aldi, but I can't go to the shoe store. I get all those things. I don't know why they're there. But that's not why we're here. We have some laboring to do. You know, work is mentioned four times in this chapter alone, which is truly an amplification of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 16, he said, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, 
We work for God. Some of us, even currently or in the past, may have worked for our uncle, Uncle Sam. But our greater boss, if you will, is our Father, our Heavenly Father. We work for God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.9, the Bible says that we are laborers together with God. Laboring with God. Ephesians 2.10 states that we are His workmanship. So if you are a new creature in Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. We have a recreation within us, and that recreation is purposed unto good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Friends, as Christians, we can never lose sight of the mission. We must remember the labor. We must remember our purpose here. There is a lot of distractions And I think that's part of the the plan, not his plan, but I think it's part of the plan to keep us distracted, to keep us focused on all these little things around here, all these temporal things, so we're not focused on the eternal things. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could do anything they wanted to do. God gave them one restriction. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But Satan came along. Did he mention any of the things they could do? Nothing, not one thing. He only focused on what they couldn't do. And when we fall into the traps of, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this, we're falling into the same traps. We can't do that. Our, our view, our mission, our mindset has to transcend what's on this earth. We work for God. We work for God. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Never let our, never let our circumstances drown out our mission. Never lose sight of it. Remember our purpose on earth. Remember the labor. And what is that labor? I mean, we can put up a whole bunch of different things, how we should live right and other things, study the book, go to church, all those things. We can put all those things together, and that wouldn't be wrong. But at the top of that, our laboring is for Jesus Christ. And he gave a command directly to the church, and that is the Great Commission. We are to labor for The Great Commission, the Great Commission to further his kingdom, to tell others about Jesus Christ. You know, when we're focused internally, all on what we cannot do, we're not focused externally on what the needs of others may be. So many of us, including myself, more often than I would choose to admit, we become content with the spiritual status quo of our friends. The status quo of the of the community. We come we become content with the lost state of my mother-in-law's soul. We're, we just become okay with that. Let's not be okay with that. They're dying. They're going to go to a devil's hell if we don't tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray for them. Pray earnestly for them. Remember the labor. Don't be content. You don't have to be nagging either. You know, you don't have to be, hey, you get saved and over and over and over again. Now, when I worked here many, many years ago here as an OC here, uh, I would go into work, and uh, there was another one of my coworkers there, and I would witness to him often. And he got into the habit as as I walked through the door, he's like, "Let me guess, I'm going to hell again today." I mean, like over and over again. And he would laugh about it. Um, I did find out that he got saved later on, so praise the Lord for that. But let's never lose sight of the mission. Jesus said, "The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few." Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. You know, there's only a few times when Jesus commands us to pray specifically for something. A handful. That's one of them. Pray for laborers. Fewer and fewer Christians today are answering the call to missions. 
fewer and fewer Christians are completely committed to Christ. Fewer and fewer Christians are just not committed anymore. Not committed to his work, to his church. Friends, we need laborers. As George, he used to come to this church a number of years ago, I guess just a couple of years ago, he said a lot of Christians just have fire insurance. Yep, I'm going to heaven, so I'm good to go. We, don't, we need more than fire insurance, and Jesus is more than fire insurance. We need laborers. And I'm not just talking about preachers and pastors. We need people to tell the world. I mean, 12 men turn the world upside down. As we heard on our Thursday Bible study, for those of us who are here, we need Christians who will hazard their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, whether we admit it or not, God expects a lot from us. He expects a lot from those who believe in Him. Remember again, verse 8, They which have believed in God are to be careful to maintain good works. Friends, our labor is not just to honor God, even though that in of itself is a most worthy cause. But our actions are to be a reflection of God. They are to be a reflection of those of God who is in us. Again, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men. I think we, many times we see that, at least in my mind, my mind drifts all the way back to when I was a child. When my Sunday school teacher says, let your light so shine before men. And they give me a little candle or a fake candle and I put a little bushel over top of it. Am I the only one that did that? No. Amen. Brother Billy, thank you very much. So, I mean, we're, we're doing those things. So my mind goes all the way back to there. But it's so much more than just that. Let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know, our good works before God and man are to be a testimony of God to man. So that those who do not believe will believe and in turn glorify the Father. Referring to our zeal for good works, again, Paul wrote at the end of chapter 2, let no man despise thee. Don't give them a reason. Follow the law. Be labor, uh, be, have a zeal for the things of the Lord. Live and labor in a way that honors God so that they may see God in us. You see, quite frankly, the world needs to see God in us. I think if I were to take a show of hands, every one of us has family members who do not know God. They need to see God in us. They need to see God in us. The world needs to see God in us. Our family needs to see God in us. Our neighbors need to see God in us. Maybe even our spouse needs to see God in us, our children. But He will never be revealed in our rebellion. God, if He's in you, if you've trusted Christ, He will not be revealed through our rebellion he will not be revealed through our complacency. When we balk at the silly laws of man or fail to fulfill what God expects from us as a fellow laborer with God, it's not the God in us that's being revealed to the world. It's us that's being revealed to the world. When we live and labor according to our purposes, we are showing our sin nature. We're revealing ourselves. And quite frankly, I've learned this a long time ago, shortly after being married, I think, but I'm convinced that it's not me the world needs more of. It's Jesus Christ. And the more my life is about me, the less it's about Him. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up against oppression when it's called for. But our focus must be on Christ. It must be on Jesus Christ and the work He has called us to. Because if you have Him, it changes everything. 
If you have Christ, if you have eternal life, then the trials that we face on this earth, the restrictions, the corona, the vaccines, the godly labor, the opposition to godly labor, the ridicule, they're really just speed bumps on the road to glory. And nothing compared to the greatness and glory that God has in store for us. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Friends, I'm encouraged this morning to stay the course. To stay the course. Whatever comes my way, regardless of how uncomfortable life gets, I want to give my best to be an obedient Christian in the sight of man and, and God for the glory of God and to do my part and more for the work of God. Remember the law. Remember the labor. Paul told Titus to remind them of these things. And then he wrote, look at verse number uh, two. And you put one and two together. He says, put them in mind to be subject to or be subject to principalities or put them in mind to speak no evil or speak evil of no man to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So this morning, number three, I want you to remember the love. Remember the love. Think about this statement for a while. I know we're, we're kind of kind of. Getting close to an ending. How many times have y'all heard a preacher say that before? But we're getting close. How sad would life be without the attribute of love? Love was the motivation for the cross, for God so loved that he gave. I want to point out and remind us again that Titus was ministering on what some could call the barbaric island of Crete. In chapter 1, Paul quoted one of their own calling themselves evil beasts. So violent quarrels, name-calling, verbal defamation, straight-up assaults upon each other, they were probably commonplace among the Cretans. Even among the Jews, as chapter 1 talks about, Paul kind of highlights them as being the worst. But Paul told Titus to remind them to love each other. To love each other. And as I mentioned in the introduction, our societies today have a lot in common with Titus, the, the society he had lived in. I mean, seriously, watch any news outlet. <laughs> I've chosen to limit my news intake quite a bit. But think about it. You, if, if you watch it just for a little bit, you'll see, you'll see things about riots and attacks, name-calling, bickering, back and forth. Pretty much everything that's not in verse number two here. Look at verse number two. They, he says, speak evil of no man, be no, be no brawler, but be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. When's the last time you saw any of that on the news? You really don't see it all that often. It's abundantly clear that one of the greatest things missing in many of our communities today is the love of God. Where's the love? Our, our marriages, our parenting, our children, our families, our friendships, they of course need to possess tons of attributes, many godly attributes for them to last. We need trust. We need honesty. We, we need a lot of things. We need all of these things and more. But personally, if I've learned anything from being a Christian almost 30 years, from being married almost 27 years to being a parent almost 24 years. If I want to be off balance in any of those attributes of my life, I want to be off balance in love. I want to love them more. I want to love God more. If I could go back in time, that is what I would change. To love God more. To love my wife more. To love my children more.
We need love in our communities. Remember the love. The Bible states that we are not to speak evil of others. We are not to be brawlers. We are not to argue or fight just to argue or fight. We are to be gentle. We are to be meek. And not just to our families. Look at that verse 3 says, to all people. And then he gives us a reason why. And this is the unfortunate thing. He says, why? For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We served diverse lust and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We were hateful and we hated each other. If I can put it this way, we are not to fight fire with fire. We are not to retaliate the, world, the way the world retaliates. We have God within us. We have the Holy Spirit of God. When someone wrongs us, we are to forgive them. That's a tall order. I get it. But we're supposed to forgive them. We're supposed to love them. Remembering that we used to be them. We used to be just like that. This is who we were. And this is who we all are without Christ. These, this list of and this list of attributes here in chapter 3. If you think about it, if you look at these things here, in other words, believers or unbelievers rather are foolish, disobedient, deceived. And I'm not saying there's no intellect outside of the church. I'm not saying that at all. We're all created in the image of God. But no kidding, there's turmoil in this world. It's no surprise that, there are, that people are disobedient and being deceived without Christ. No kidding, there's malice and envy even in among our families and friends. It's no surprise that we are hateful and hate each other sometimes. This is who we are without God. Paul is telling Timothy, or Titus here, when you see this among the ministry, when you're out there ministering, and when you're you know, having, having a donor kebab with one of those other Cretans there on the island, and you see some of these attributes come out, when you see these things, even in new Christians, don't be surprised. Don't even respond in kind. Love them. Because you used to be them. Speak evil of no man. Be gentle and show meekness. Remember the love. I thought about this as I was putting this together. When, when somebody hurts me or somebody hurts a family member and they are not, they either don't know the Lord or they're not living for the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised. Just forgive them. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. As we kind of come to a close this morning, I want you to look at verses 3 and 4 again. We just read number 3. Look at verse 4. It says, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness as we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Friends, we can truly only remember the love because of the Lord, because of the love of the Savior. So for us this morning, the, the last of these things in verse 8, I believe, that we are to affirm constantly is to remember the Lord. There is absolutely no work on our part that results in eternal life. I think this is Paul's point here. He lists some things there in verse 3. He says, you used to be these, but you're not because you're saved now. And he's pointing out in my mind that you're saved by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look on the slide here. We got Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Many of us come to the point where this is our salvation. We may be a tie, we may be tied to a Sunday school when we were saved as a seven-year-old or eight-year-old, or maybe even younger, a little bit older. But salvation is more than an elementary issue. Salvation permeates your whole walk through the Lord. We can never forget the fact that Christ did it all. Our boasting and our glorying can only be in Christ. He is our Savior. And according to His mercy, He saved us. Look at verse number 7 of chapter 3. We are justified by His grace so that we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All of our salvation, every bit of it, has been paid for and prepared by Jesus Christ. And I think this is our takeaway from this message, this last point here. In other words, get this now. If we really believe, I mean truly believe, we have Christ in our hearts, that everything good in our life is because of God. As a matter of fact, if you, if you forget everything else, if you were sleeping all the way through until this point, please wake up and listen to this. If we truly believe that our salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, we truly believe that it's according to His mercy, if we through faith have experienced the kindness and love of Jesus Christ, then when we remember the Lord... We don't think of some distant God in some faraway galaxy. We don't think of some historical figure in Palestine many years ago. We remember a friend. We remember a person who gave himself for us that he might redeem us. We remember our creator. We remember our redeemer. We remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The friend of sinners. There has to be a personal relationship. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, you cannot live a victorious life before God. It has to be real, more real than the relationship between you and your spouse, between you and your children. It has to be real. That is our motivator. That is our compeller, if you will. So while we are reminded of the Lord, it's important to see. I want to give you an example. here. We just went through these three things here. The law, the labor, and the love. If we remember the Lord and he is a personal friend of us, we know him. I mean, we truly know him. We also know that we can only love him because he first loved us. Jesus is our example of loving others. And after the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for working on the Sabbath, he responded with, my father works, I'm working. And in Luke 2.49, Jesus responded to Mary with, I must be about my father's business. Jesus is our example of labor. And finally, in Philippians 2.8, the Bible states that he was being found in fashion as a man. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, Jesus is our example of keeping the law. He kept every part of it. He fulfilled the law. So when we struggle with keeping the law, when we begin to lose our zeal for the good works, for the labor, when we find it difficult to love, difficult to forgive, remember that we can't do it. But He can. He can. He is our example. He can live our life through us better than we can ever try. Give it to God. Remember the Lord. Let's pray.